life of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 7. Uh, in this text, there are two main sections. The first is looking at uh, the construction of Solomon's palace complex, which you'll notice there's five buildings in there, as well as the fixtures and furnitures of the temple. So kind of the items that are in the courtyard of the temple, as well as some of the furniture inside the temple. You'll, you'll remember last week, uh, the passage was looking at the construction of the um, exterior of the temple, and Kind of coming after that is then this look at Solomon's house, also in its externals. Then it moves to the internal furniture of the temple. And for time's sake, uh, we're not going to spend the 10 minutes it would take to read this whole text. So we are going to be skipping from verse 14 to verse 40, which actually gives a summary of the items constructed in in the temple courtyard which is particularly a very detailed description of three main items of bronze. Two big bronze pillars with what are called capitals, basically capstones on the top of them. Um, a big basin that's called the sea. It's, it's this big bronze basin that's on the backs of 12 um, engraved oxen. And then what they call stands, which are really carts that have wheels and basins in them so that you have portable water. So a big standing water and then portable water, and um, just know that these are all very ornate with engravings and all different things on them. And so we're going to be looking at the big picture tonight, not getting lost in all the intricate details, which we could do for a while, but what are the main features of these works? So let's uh, read God's word from 1 Kings chapter 7. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. And he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and Window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars, and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne, where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the copping and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones, cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill. 
for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. Now let's go to verse 40. Verse 40. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates on each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars, the 10 stands and the 10 basins on the stands, and the one sea, and the 12 oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarathan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the snuffers, cups, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless us as we look to his word this evening. The great theme of this passage, a word that pops up throughout uh, and said in this last verse, is how all this work was finished. That is, the, the, the job Solomon had to do for the palace complex and the temple, it was completed. We could call this a job well done. And don't you know that feeling? It's a great feeling when you feel like you've done a job well done. Not something you had to rush through that you weren't super happy with, but, you know, a, a research paper in school that you just felt like you really worked hard on and are happy with the result, or maybe a table that you built for your family, or an intensive cross-stitch, or uh, boys and girls, if you got, say, a really, a really big Lego set for Christmas that was just really hard to build, and once it was done, you just felt so good that it had been completed. It's a wonderful feeling, and, and this text is detailing the completion of two massive building projects for Solomon. Five buildings in his palace complex, and the building of the temple, and all these different fixtures and furniture pieces that were a part of it. And we remember from last week that this is being written to an Israelite people that actually has been exiled from the land. Therefore, the original audience reading this is reminded of what they've lost. This whole palace complex not being used. The temple defunct. And so when we're reading this, we're thinking about a people that is being reminded of just the goodness that they are now lacking. And as we look at the different items in this passage, what we're going to be looking at 
is how they functioned in the life of Israel. What did these things mean to the people? And therefore, in exile, what are they hoping to regain? But then ultimately realizing that all these hopes, ones that were lost that are hoping to be restored, all these human desires and longings are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is going to be a bit different as we walk through a few of these different buildings and furniture pieces. We won't be able to cover all of them, but uh, some of the more significant ones. So we'll first start looking at the palace complex. Uh, Take a look back at verse 2. Solomon built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. So this is a large rectangular building, 150 feet by 75 feet, with tons of big cedar pillars in it. It's a big, majestic hall. It's called the House of the Forest of Lebanon. And what this house was used for was it was used as a treasury and an armory. It was basically a big storage center. Um, Along this hall, there was all these side chambers where these things were stored. Uh, One of the more notable things that was in this hall was 300 golden shields that Solomon made of immense value. And sadly, actually, just in the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the Egyptians sneak up and steal all these shields. We see this just in 1 Kings 14, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came against Jerusalem and took away the treasuries of the house of the Lord, the treasuries of the king's house. He took away everything, even the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of, silver, uh, shields of bronze. Um, I, I remember one time uh, hearing a pastor who preached this text and called it the saddest verse in the whole Bible. Um, I don't think he's quite right, but he was pointing out how the, the glory of these 300 golden shields being stolen and replaced with mere bronze shields. Uh, the saddest verse in the Bible. But anyways, um, besides the point, uh, this hall is a beautiful armory and treasury. And it was plundered first by Egypt and now has been plundered by Babylon. Babylon stole the wealth of Israel and stole the people away. And so what this represents to the people is the loss of the the wealth of the nation. The loss of their place as a prominent, prestigious nation in the eyes of the world. They've lost their wealth and they've also lost their armories. They're not a protected people. They don't have um, military provisions anymore. They lost what's represented in the, in the house of the forest of Lebanon. They've also lost what's represented in the hall of the throne. Look at verse 7. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. So here we have a twofold name, the hall of the throne and the hall of judgment. Solomon's throne room, as it were. And in these times, the throne room is the place where judgment takes place, like law court-style judgment. It's, as it were, the supreme court of the land. If you remember a few chapters back, there's those two, those two prostitutes that come um, arguing about whose child is really their child, and they bring that case to Solomon um, as, as the lawgiver. And the place of the throne is always the place where the law goes forth. Do you remember what um, the psalmist writes in Psalm 89, 14, that righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne? Because just laws help lead to a just society. And so the loss of their own room of judgment is to Israel the loss of justice, the loss of righteous laws, 
the loss of godly principles in the land. Now pagans reign over them, enacting unjust laws, not upholding righteousness. They've lost the foundations of a righteous and just society, the hall of the throne, but also the houses of the king and queen. We read of Solomon's home, as well as the home of his wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. Royal families, right? They, they live in royal palaces. It's something that seems to intrigue us. And I know even in America, you guys enjoy watching the crown and looking at the royal family and stuff, not just us Canadians. But um, this, this interest of, they had their royal family, but no longer. The royal family was deposed. There was no king and queen living in the palaces anymore. They were empty. Israel is no longer being ruled by their own leaders, but by enemies. And so what these three buildings are saying to Israel in exile is it's producing longings in their heart. We want to get back to that place of of wealth and protection as a nation. We want to be once again under our God's laws, the laws of a good king. We want a king that God's given reigning over us, living in his palace. They want this peace and protection, this security, this fellowship. And although there will be a glorious return from exile, these hopes are ultimately only fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills what's represented in each of these buildings. Consider with me that Jesus is the true house of the forest of Lebanon. He is the treasury, Colossians 2.3 says, in whom are found all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ is the armory. You remember we sing in that hymn, Be thou my battle shield, sword for the fight. Be thou my dignity, my delight. Christ is the protector of his people. He's the provider of his people. Our desire for that security is found in the Lord Jesus. Also consider the hall of the throne. Jesus is the true king who reigns on his throne at God's right hand and has sent forth his law into the world. His word, the word of the gospel, the word of the scriptures, who he now says that the task of discipleship is to teach everyone to obey all that Christ has commanded. And it's only as obedience to Christ's law happens that there can be the foundation for the just and prosperous and peaceful society that we desire. And we think also of how one day each one of us will stand before the great white throne as Christ sits and judges the nations, separating the righteous from the wicked. Perfect justice will be done on that day. Everyone will get their due. Christ also fulfills what we see in the house of Solomon as his bride. The church is the bride of Christ, destined to dwell with Christ in his house forever. What did Jesus tell his disciples in John 14, 2-3? He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Our desire to, to know the fellowship of the King will be fulfilled in heaven where the bride and bridegroom dwell together where we're in the presence of Emmanuel forever. And so, these human longings, these longings of the exiles, the longings for safety and security, for peace and justice, for fellowship and communion, these hopes 
are all ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we learn from the palace complex. But we also learn from the temple fixtures. Take a look again at verse 14. We read of Tyre, this bronze worker, or um, Hiram, rather. This is not King Hiram that we saw a couple weeks ago. This is a different guy from Tyre named Hiram, who's actually half Israelite. Um, So anyways, don't get confused about that. And we're told in verse 14 that he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. You might recognize how similar that language is to what's written in the book of Exodus about Bezalel, the the one endowed by God with wisdom to construct the tabernacle. A similar thing going on here with Hiram and the temple. And it's telling us that the work he does, it's a wise work. It's a skillful work. It's a beautiful, intricate work. Uh, This work, again, of these different items, these two bronze pillars, and then a bronze basin on oxen, and more smaller basins on carts. And so, so let's consider uh, the symbolism behind these particular items of bronze. Take a look at verse 21. And he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. So these here are at the front of the temple, big, strong pillars. About 35 feet tall is what you could imagine for these pillars. And these big um, pillars that would totally engross your vision, uh, he names them names. He names them Jachin and Boaz. And I don't know how many of you have pillars in your home that you've named. I don't think pillar naming is as much of a thing anymore. But I was thinking, there are other inanimate things that we name. I was reminded of how my family back um, in the Vancouver area would really enjoy sometimes just going walking around on different docks and looking at the different ships in dock, especially the big, beautiful yachts. And they all have names on them. And it would be fun to just kind of analyze the names, what ones have interesting names or have done well. And very often, if you name something, the name is supposed to represent um, something of what the item symbolizes. So it was actually interesting. I was looking up for very large yachts the two most popular names to give to these big, expensive boats are Serenity and Freedom. You see, that's what what I guess the people that can buy these big yachts think, that this is going to be my place of serenity, of escaping my place of freedom. That's what it symbolizes to them. Now, these pillars get names that symbolize something very important. They're named Jachin and Boaz. Jachin means he will establish And Boaz means, in him is strength. So what the names of these pillars are telling everyone that hears of them and sees them, that God is the one who establishes his people. That is, Jachin reminds Israel of the promise of God, that he will establish them in the land. It reminds them of the promise gave to the king that we've read in previous weeks, that he will establish the throne of David if only the king will walk in covenant faithfulness. It reminds them of God's establishment promise. Boaz reminds them of where the power to maintain this is. In him is strength. God is the power of his people. He provides them with necessary strength. And so for once again, Israel in exile is put away from these pillars. 
They are no longer established. They've been uprooted out of their land. They're no longer experiencing God's strength there because they've been overpowered by their enemies. And so they are being reminded that they want to regain that establishment, to know God's strength, because God does promise them in his covenant that if they will repent of their sins, he will be faithful to his covenant and will reestablish them in the land. He will once again be the strength and security of his people. Because even though the people have disobeyed and are being disciplined, if they repent, he will be faithful to his covenant. Jachin and Boaz. These two big pillars, but also a massive bronze sea. This is about 15 feet in diameter and about 7 feet tall. So it could, could almost think of like a little, uh, one of those round backyard swimming pools. And it holds about 8,000 gallons, this sea. So this is a large vessel, and it's larger than the amount of water the priests would actually need. So there's clearly symbolic significance here. And there's also the smaller basins, which are on carts to be portable. And the, we put these together because they have a similar significance. So we can look at the different uses of this sea, of these basins and carts. The, the primary use is for purification rituals. To enter God's presence, the priests had to be washed. Washed with water. Not that washing with water actually did anything actually, but that it symbolized the necessary purification needed to go before the presence of God. Just like how today, in, in baptism, the water is a symbol of the purification that comes in the gospel. That's what the water is used for. There's also a practical use of the water. It's used to wash the entrails of the sacrifices. Um, boys and girls, I don't know if you, off, if you ever hear about this, but in the Old Testament, the temple, there's lots of like guts as the animals get cut open. The priests actually have to wash the insides of the animals and wash off all the blood. That's, there's so much blood that has to get washed with water. It really would have been quite a sight to behold. We think of all these clean temples, but this was a wild and a kind of gross place. And so they needed water to help keep things clean. But also, there is a symbolic significance of this sea. And it's very interesting because in ancient times, seas um, represented um, chaos, vulnerability, danger. Um, uh, storms could arise and uh, overturn you and lose your life so easily. And so seas represent chaos and vulnerability. But this, um, this miniature sea, if you will, is going to be calm in the courtyard. And it's calm sitting on the backs of strong creatures. Twelve oxen, three facing in each of the cardinal directions. And this is a symbolic reminder that God is the one who is Lord over the chaotic seas of this world. He is the king, the Lord over the troubled waters. He, he's stronger than all the oxen. He sees in every direction, omnipotent, everywhere at once, all-knowing. And so Israel's Lord is the true Lord the sovereign Lord, the Lord over all the chaotic forces of nature. We're reminded of how um, Psalm, 9, Psalm 93, 4 says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And I, and I do think this is a helpful reminder to us 
when we look around in all our day and we feel like things are chaotic, we feel vulnerable to just forces we have no control over in this world. Um, it, it feel, the world feels dangerous in many ways. It's helpful for us to be reminded that nothing surprises our Lord, that he is the one on whom the whole world rests. Everything is in his hands. And so we can look to the Lord of the waters as an anchor for us, a stabilizing point, even if we find ourselves in tumultuous times. And this, again, is a great loss to the people of Israel. This system of purification, the work of the temple, this access to the presence of God, and a desire to regain it, to be able to see the, these purifying rituals once again happening. But these hopes, once again, are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills the longings of these bronze pillars. Because we're reminded that in Christ... There is establishment that through his sacrifice, the covenant between God and man is surely and fully established. All God's promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that if we are founded in relationship with God through faith in Jesus, then nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He establishes, but he also gives strength to his people. Boaz, Jesus ascended on high and sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people for the obedience that he calls us to. Where Jesus calls, Jesus empowers by his Spirit. Jesus also fulfills what's seen in this bronze sea. Jesus is the great purifier of his people. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And because Jesus purifies us, we can draw near to God and enter that temple that no normal Israelite could enter but the priests. We heard this this morning and we hear it again from Hebrews 10.22 that because we've been purified with Christ, we're called, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ is the purifier, but he's also the, the Lord of the troubled sea. And the image we have of Christ now in heaven, we see in Revelation 4:6 that before the throne, there's a sea of glass, as it were, of crystal. The smoothest, most calm and tranquil sea in the presence of of Jesus. And so in all this, we're meant to see the beauty of this promise-keeping Christ, this power-providing Christ, this conscience-purifying Christ. You see, Jesus fulfills all the hopes, all these dashed hopes of these exiled Israelites. They want to be established. They want to be strong. They want to be provided for. They want to be protected. They, they want to have prominence. And, and they think they'll get these things by getting back to the land, by rebuilding the temple, by reestablishing the kingdom. And though they do get back, they're only ever going to taste the fruition of these hopes and dreams. Because these human longings, these real desires you and I have to know security and peace in troubled times, to know freedom from our gnawing conscience, to, to know that there is strength to face life. 
We will never find these fulfilled in anything in this world, but we only find these longings of our heart fulfilled in Jesus Christ and through his work. And the conclusion of this all, in this last verse, verse 57, it says, Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. Solomon finished the work of the house of the king. He finished his work on the house of the Lord. And thus it stood. But what does the greater than Solomon say? The Lord Jesus, when he has completed the work the Father gave him to do. When he's nailed on the cross, what does he say? But it is finished. The work you've given me to do, O Father, it is finished. And so it is for every child of God that's brought into Christ's finished work. There's nothing left to be done. And although there are loose ends to be tied up, we don't yet see the culmination of this process of salvation that Christ has initiated. There's nothing left to be paid. There's no deposits left to be made because from the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, the foundation is secured, and it's as if the work were entirely done. In Christ, the work is finished. There's nothing missing or lacking. And so because Christ's work is finished, we now, through Christ, have access to all these blessings Israel hungered after. All these blessings that many in this world are hungering after the blessings represented in these buildings, in these temple items, ones we've seen tonight, in Christ there is provision for all our needs. There's protection from ultimate harm. The path of true justice, fellowship with God, security in life, freedom from fears, power to overcome sin and live to God, purification from guilt, peace with the Lord through Jesus Christ. Truly, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the privilege of the children of God. We need to think on it, meditate on it, because these blessings are often lost on us because we don't give them enough due attention, enough due consideration. And as we go in this year, and we feel longings arise in our hearts. We feel fears arising, shame arising, and we, we desire to be prominent. We desire to be successful. We desire to be safe. We need to look to Christ in each of these, because in him, we find every fulfilled hope of our hearts. All our hopes and longings are found and fulfilled in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all these incredible images and symbols that show us another glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Would you teach us the art of looking to him in all our struggles, whenever we feel any emptiness, lack, or desire, that we would not seek to satisfy ourselves with earthly things, but that we would look to the substantial, the spiritual, the eternal, laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where the things of earth won't destroy, but would we always consider Christ the greatest treasure, that treasure in the field that we would give all to have. Lord, let us love Christ more this year. We pray this and we come to you by his mediation and in his name. Amen.